Hello everybody and thank you for joining me for a new episode of The Daily Optimist. Today is Wednesday and depending on how your work week goes, there's that tongue twister, it may or may not be hump day for you. And if it is, enjoy your hump day. You're almost towards your weekend. If it's not hump day for you and it's a weekend, depending upon what you do for work, enjoy your weekend. Uh, Whatever the case may be, I hope you're finding ways to enjoy your day. I hope you're finding ways to continue to make a positive impact in your your own life, your community, your family, your friends, all the above. All right, do your best every day to just be positive. I know it's not easy. We're still living in pandemic times. We're still living in racially charged times, sexual assault times, as this is Sexual Assault Awareness Month. Um... And that is not a joke, nor is it to be taken lightly. So just no matter what you do, I hope you are able to, you know, talk to somebody, find your way through, find positives in your own life that will help you to strive and be a better, stronger person and help those around you to be better, stronger people as well. And life is not a a series of positives after another, and I am well aware of that. But here on The Daily Optimist, I have a goal, and that is to make sure that even if you don't have a positive uh, outlook on your day, I try to bring you something positive in yours so that you don't have to go out there and find it. You can just tune in and listen and know that there are positive things that happen. And hopefully, I I hope to put your mind at a little bit of ease. I hope to uh, inspire you to, to look at the next day differently. And uh, it's a process, and it doesn't happen overnight. But if you keep listening, I hope at some point you can uh, find ways that you don't necessarily need me, but will still tune in and can help bring it to other people as well. All right. So thank you for your uh, tuning in. I appreciate each and every one of you. All right, let's get into it. My name, of course, is Elijah Manning, and you are listening to the Daily Optimist. My first news story is going to come from uh, what has just happened with uh, Biden announcing his uh, $2 trillion to help improve America's infrastructure. So I'm going to talk briefly about that, and then I'm going to go into um, a interesting follow-up that has kind of never been talked about, at least uh, from my perspective. I've never heard anybody talk about it on a, a mass scale, and I think now it's starting to reach that. So this is going to come from the NPR article, and it is about, uh, again, Biden's $2 trillion uh, America infrastructure plan to help improve it. But um, he's also promised to address the racism ingrained in historical transportation and urban planning. And I've heard only about this through my own means, but never on a massive uh, level like this, where it's actually being talked about by the president of the United States. And it's actually going to be uh, looked at on, on the history of it. So real quick, Biden's plan is going to include 20 billion that would reconnect neighborhoods cut off by historic investments. That's a a quote from the White House. And they also say, 
40% of the benefits of climate and clean infrastructure investments to uh, disadvantaged communities. So that's what it's going to reconnect them to historic in investments and to 40% of the benefits of climate and clean infrastructure investments to disadvantaged communities. So uh, the article talks about how the um, Federal Aid Highway Act of 1956 routed some highways directly and sometimes purposefully through black and brown communities. In some instances, the article says, the government took homes by eminent domain. So some of these I I knew about. Well, I knew about the fact that there was always these stories of it running through these black and brown neighborhoods and, um, and how uh, I'd heard about some of the government taken from eminent uh, or by eminent domain. But I've never heard uh, of how in-depth it really goes. And there is a... Um, professor at New York University School of Law, and she's a national board president of the American Civil Liberties Union, and her name is Deborah Archer, and she recently uh, wrote for the Iowa Law Review, and it's about how transportation policy affected the development of black communities. Um, so some of the questions in the uh, NPR article, well, first off, I'll tell you that you can find her entire uh, report, if you will. You can find that online. You can just simply put it into Google or your search engine. And you can find all about the report if you're interested in reading it. I have read about the first five to seven pages. And it is uh, interesting, fascinating, heartbreaking, disappointing all at once. Um, so... She was in an interview with NPR, and uh, some of the quick things, I'll, I'll give a quick highlight. And number one is, why would officials have targeted thriving, vibrant communities? Was it just because the people who lived there were black and or brown? That's what uh, NPR asked. And uh, her response is, some of the time, yes, that was actually the case. The highways were being built just as courts around the country were striking down traditional tools of racial segregation. So, for example... Courts were striking down the use of racial zoning to keep black people in certain communities and white people in other communities. And so the highway development popped up at a time when the idea, the possibility of integrating uh, integration in housing was on the horizon. And so very intentionally, highways were sometimes built right on the formal boundary lines that we saw used during racial zoning. Sometimes, community members ask the highway builders to create a barrier between their community and encroaching black communities. So I would encourage everybody to read the article. If you are uh, super interested, then find the, um, the paper. You can even click the link for the paper in um, the NPR article. And the article on NPR.org is called A Brief History of How Racism Shaped Interstate Highways. All right, you can listen to it, but if you read, you can um, click on the link that will connect you right to the paper itself for those of you who really want to take a more in-depth look at it. I know I will be finishing it at some point, or sooner hopefully rather than later. Uh, so, again, as we have, uh, over the past year during the pandemic, we have also had a more of a racial reckoning uh, within you know, racial injustice coming. And we are 
now seeing more of these types of conversation in the mainstream and the fact that there's uh, actual conversation being held in the highest office of the land of the U.S., that is with President Biden, and how these racial inequities have have really pushed down communities of color for, for generations. Um, you know, there's been talk of reparations and, and there was a, a, a town in, uh, I want to say it was Illinois that actually did uh, a reparations for the community. And I don't know if that will be coming for the entire um, country. And I, I doubt it will be, but things are still possible. But the fact that they are looking to right some of these wrongs is huge. Whether you agree or disagree is not not really um, up for debate on this because it's factual. Like, you can disagree that they should do something about it. You could, uh, but you can't quite disagree that it happened. Because, you know, this isn't just somebody making things up. This is going through the history of what happened. And in America, we don't always fully uh, grapple with our history of how we've perpetuated racism and um, uh, buoyed white supremacy. And more than ever now, we are we are actually looking at that. So those are just some of my quick thoughts on that. And like I said, I'm going to continue reading about that. And I know uh, you may or may not agree with everything I say, and that's okay. You're allowed your opinion. And if you ever want to talk about it, you can email me. I am thedailyoptimist at yahoo.com. Or you can find me on social media, the, the Daily Optimist or the Daily Optipod. Whatever you'd like to put in, you can find me and you can have a conversation with me. I look forward to that if you so choose. All right, um, I'm going to switch over now into the coronavirus. So this pandemic is continually uh, ravaging our world. And in the U.S., um, we are having an uptick right now. And it's mostly because of four different states um, that are really uh, being hit hard. And uh, I think it's New York, Michigan, um, Florida, and I forget the third or the fourth one, rather. Um, but so what is happening right now in Brazil is even worse than, than what's happening uh, elsewhere. Brazil, as of, uh, I believe, the reading of the CNN article it's po uh, posted today, uh, over 24 hours, they have had 4,195 COVID-19 fatalities, and that's over a 24-hour period. Now they've had their death toll up to 337,000. I know in the U.S. that death toll is still worse. We're up to over 500,000, so I'm not comparing those situations. I'm saying right now Brazil is having a terrible uh, go of it, and a lot of it has to do with, they say, um, Bolsonaro. And this is, again, according to the CNN article, Bolsonaro, who has continued to downplay the seriousness of his country's health crisis, brushed off claims he was to blame for the country's spiraling death toll. Um, there are people who are saying that it's a form of genocide, just letting people die and not giving them proper support, not attempting to shut down um, you know, cities or anything. And he, you know, he talks about how Sao Paulo uh, has one of the highest death tolls, but it's not a, a full look at it. It has the has the highest absolute death toll. It ranks tenth in deaths per capita. So again, per capita, that's per person who basically lives there. It's tenth. So it has the highest, but because it's the most populated city. Um, 
They, <clears throat> and a third of the deaths reported Tuesday were in Sao Paulo, where 1,389 people died in the 24 hours. So again, he is not really providing much help. Uh, he hasn't, he's kind of what our former president twice impeached did with it was kind of left it up to everybody else on their own. Um, he said that his job as the government is to just help by giving money, um, but not necessarily locking people down. Um, so hospitals. So as of late Tuesday, 23 out of Brazil's 27 federations, and that's their hospitals, reported an ICU occupancy rate of 80% or more. And of those, 15 have either collapsed or are on the verge of collapsing with ICU occupancy over 90%. And ICU is intensive care unit. Um, Mateo Grasso do Sul is already over capacity, while only four states are under 80% occupancy. Um, they're having issues with their the vaccine rollout as well. Uh, their Bolsonaro said that he's interested in acquiring Russia's uh, Sputnik V COVID vaccine, and it has to be tested to gain approval in their country. Um, so this is rough in worldwide. Um, the U.S., Turkey, France, and India are reporting the highest case numbers as well. So reminder that although the vaccine is out and there is hope on the horizon, there are still lots of work to do and we can't just um we can't just all go back to the life the way it was especially if you're in one of those uh countries it is still um out there if you are vaccinated it's a little bit different but if you are not please continue to take care of yourselves and each other stay masked up um and just try to avoid being in those super crowded spots okay <clears throat> excuse me Oh, all right, time to switch over to some positive news. I'll be back in a moment. It is time now for some positive news. My first positive news story is going to come from um, some communities that have been having issues with deforestation that's not the good news <clears throat> excuse me the good news is that there has been um reports or studies that have said giving indigenous communities legal title to their land has been shown to be more effective at protecting forests than declaring them national parks and this is according to positive.news article all right so we know that there has been a lot of shrinking rainforest over the the past, you know, 20 years to longer as deforestation increases and uh, other elements um, of taking away forest habitat. But instead of just declaring them national parks, there's actual evidence that suggests that if you give it back to the indigenous tribes, let them have the eminent domain over it, but also... Um, by having them partner with friends and allies from elsewhere, whether it be in the same country or around the world as well, that they can together sustain the actual rainforest. So the first one comes from um, Rede de Sementes de Jangu, Brazil. And I could be mispronouncing the heck out of that. I don't speak uh, Portuguese very well. <clears throat> so sorry if I'm butchering that. 
but it's the Jangu people that are in central Brazil. And the article says that it's their traditional homeland, and they've had conflicts between the farmers and the Jangu. Their um, deforestation is harming the farms as well as the forest by disrupting water supplies and increasing risk uh, or fire risk. Um, but so what it is is the Jangu women. In particular, many of whom have become forest entrepreneurs, they collect a wide variety of seeds of native species and train community members and farmers alike in a traditional practice known as muvuka. This involves scattering a mix of seeds across the soil and it makes it possible to sow up to 10 times more trees per hectare and at half the cost than the conventional method of planting saplings of a single species. So, by having these um, these women specifically who know the climate and who know it, they're able to actually grow forest back. So, the idea goes to also that the tribes that live there, they need it for more than one thing. It's a source of income for them, but it's also a source of, of livelihood for them as well. And not just income-wise, that's where they live. Their housing, their, their communities are built within these systems already. So if you allow them, plus give them some outside support to help, like making sure they have medical facilities and things of that nature so that um, they can continue to build up their own forest communities, then it's only a positive for everybody as well. Uh, another one comes from Peru, <clears throat> where they have uh, many different uh, things that they grow and can sell out to other places as well. And they obviously know how to farm the land and they know how to make sure the um, the 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 rainforest itself thrives. These they include in this one in Peru. This is for an E Valley in Peru, and it is they grow coffee and coca beans um so that's important and it's the ashaninka farmers that improve the quality of their coffee and cocoa beans they find natural ways to protect them from disease and connect with local buyers and regional markets this helps them secure a decent price for what are after all high quality products with the added cachet of being rainforest grown coffee and chocolate so that's another way all right. So again, this is from an article in Positive News. And then there's one in the Congo Basin of Cameroon. And it goes into how, you know, there's 400 different species of mammals, including gorillas, bonobo apes, and forest elephants. It's rich in human diversity, too, home to more than 150 ethnic groups, including the Baka, each with their own store of knowledge and experience of the forest. <clears throat> and um, the country has recognized more than 260 community forests effectively giving local people land rights over their home forest. Helping some of these make the most of their rights is, is the Rainforest Alliance. It's working with communities in southeastern Cameroon around the Ja Biosphere Reserve, which is home to the rare West western lowland gorilla. Here it has helped form community-owned enterprises to enable locals to profit from sustainable harvesting of timber and other forest products, such as wild mangoes and the Najangsang nut used for natural oils and soap. So again, three different communities where they've helped them thrive by allowing them to to really uh, take ownership of their lands that they know so well, and obviously with some outside help in in selling and um, uh, marketing their product to be able to reach a global audience. So that is a wonderful article from Positive News, and hopefully more places will continue to see that as a positive thing. My next positive story comes from Daily Mail, and it's about a Georgia restaurant owner who offers a burglar a job. 
So Carl Wallace is the owner of Diablo Southwest Grill on Wheeler Road in Augusta, Georgia. There was a um, he recently was was being robbed, and the venue uh, has a smash glass door, and he posted about it, saying our burritos are such a smash hit. We've got people breaking in at 4 a.m. for the fix. So if you see our door looking hurricane fabulous at Wheeler Road, this is why. Um, and then he said, to the would-be robber who is clearly struggling with life decisions or having money issues, please swing by for a job application. There are better opportunities out there than the path you've chosen. Uh, he shared his personal phone number and he said, no police, no questions. Let's sit down and talk about how we could help you and fix the road you're on. So, you know, he's being uh, praised from the community and it is... Um, you know, people saying that they are coming to, uh, what's the word? They're coming to visit and they're coming to, um, make sure that they support his restaurant. So not only was it like, you know, he was getting robbed, but at the same time he was, um, being able to promote his business, which a strange thing that happens. Um, so he was able to turn that positive or turn that negative into a positive and he says they're risking so much every time they do this to the business owner to themselves or what could happen if police show up during the process of the break-in uh so again the post has been liked more than four thousand times and hundreds have commented praising wallace for his compassionate approach and there's no word on if this actually uh, the the would-be robber actually came in and um, did it, you know, did apply for a job or anything. But the fact that is um, that he was offered, and hopefully it does work out for them. We will see. We will see. All right. Now it's time for your positive step for the day. So, for your step of the day, I want you to think about taste. What does that mean? It means absolutely something you can taste with your your tongue and, and your, your lips, your mouth, all that. But it also means your likes or dislikes, you know, is it a painting? Is it a movie? Or how about even more in-depth than that? How about, you know, you can even say your taste of what looks right in society or what feels right in society or even, you know, your taste of preferring a Republican or a Democrat. That's all goes down to taste and, and you know, taste. Um, I should give you taste by definition. Uh, I'll do that for you. And it taste definition, it says the sensation uh, of flavor perceived in the mouth and throat on contact with a substance or a person's liking for particular flavors, perceive or experience, okay? So it doesn't just have to do with your appetite and how you taste, but it has to do with your how you perceive things and you experience things. And it can be flavor, but it can also be more than just uh, in within your um, physical mouth. All right. There's also the psychology of what taste means behind it. Okay, and there's a uh, an idea, and I want you to think about what are some things that you 
have a taste for and they could be food wise if you're thinking about food and maybe you get a chance to taste your favorite meal today or just something you really enjoy but i also want you to think about your tastes in art and your tastes in literature and are they expanded beyond simply what you grew up with have you learned to 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 create your own taste have you tried enough different things to taste things differently than before and of course this goes for food but it also goes to the world in a larger extent so if you haven't tasted enough different things how do you know what you like you have to get out there and taste things in a different way all right so i want you to just think about that in terms of taste and expand it beyond just the the actual sensation in your mouth and tongue so my quote is going to come from Bertolt Brecht. All right, he was a German theater practitioner, playwright, and poet. And this is where I want you to think about it. His quote goes like this. Sometimes it's more important to be human than to have good taste. I'm going to say that again. Sometimes it's more important to be human than to have good taste. All right. So as I was connecting taste to different things within society and humanity, sometimes it's more important to be human than to have good taste. And what does that mean to you? All right. As I'm telling you to expand your your idea of what it is to taste something or, or what you like as your taste, how can it be m more human than just to have good taste? Okay. Think about that. That's a very deep question. And I want you to really investigate that and what that means to you. All right. Thank you very much, everybody, for making it through this episode of The Daily Optimist. I appreciate each and every one of you for listening. I'm going to do it again with you tomorrow. We'll be back. We'll have some new things to talk about, or at least I'll talk about them and you can listen. I appreciate you all. But before we go, please, as always, rate, subscribe, and share. Rate so that other people can find it. Subscribe so you never miss it. And share with anybody who needs a little positivity and optimism in their day. It's not always easy, but we can find it together. Thank you very much, everybody. Until next time, please be well.